Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. glad you're here this morning. Uh, we are so glad that you're here to worship on Memorial Day weekend. We have not had a chance so far to say anything about the weekend, but I uh, want to just express at the beginning of our worship time as we break into God's Word. Uh, for those of you who have uh, have had someone in your life that's given the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom, we just want to acknowledge that and recognize that as we celebrate this Memorial Day weekend. We know that for many of us, it's a time of celebration and fun. For others of us, it's a time of uh, despair and mourning. And so we just want to re- recognize that today and remember and say thank you for the sacrifices that have been made for our freedom. Uh, We are so glad that you're here today. And if you have a Bible and want to follow along with us, we're going to start out this morning in Revelation chapter 19. Uh, We can celebrate God's truth together, His Word together. This is our final time in the book of Revelation as we are wrapping up a teaching series uh, today. And uh, we we finished the teaching element of it last week. If you're new to our church, uh, for about six months, seven months, A year. I don't know how long we've been doing this. It's been a while. We have been walking through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the book of Revelation. And so uh, we finished the teaching element of that up last week. Today, what we wanted to do was finish up our series by giving you a chance to ask questions. And so that happened uh, by way of you writing on cards, giving those back to us, texting us in. Uh, You just sent us your thoughts and said, hey, here's something that was talked about in the series that I still don't know if I fully understand. Or here's a view, Joel, that you had that I I have a different view. So how do you kind of come about those things? And so today my goal is to just answer some of the questions that are still left lingering uh, from this series. And so here's what I would say as we go into this. Number one, I don't know who wrote the questions. They all came in anonymously. So uh, that's probably good. Uh, so I don't have any way of knowing, hey, you said this and now I've got to defend myself against you or whatever not doing any of that. Uh, it's more just a way of saying, hey, here was a great question that was asked. Let's talk about it. Uh, number two, as I've been saying throughout this series, is that a lot of people have a lot of different views about the book of Revelation. And there are people who I disagree with about their views. There are people who disagree with me about my views. And that's just fine. Uh, there are certain things in Scripture that we should not disagree on that are uh, things that just must be believed a certain way and that we hold and they're very clear in their teaching and precise in the way that we're supposed to understand them. The book of Revelation has a lot of things in it that are revelatory about the future. 
There are things that we just don't know 100% how they're going to unfold, what's going to take place in them. There's some level of speculation on our part about some of these things. Uh, the more you study it and the deeper you get into it, the more you start to become familiar with the language John uses, the way he talks about prophetic things. The more I've dug into this, I've become more acquainted with and adjusted to being able to understand and identify what's prophetic, uh, what's past tense, what's things that are still to come. How is John thinking about some of these things? The numbers in the book of Revelation can get confusing sometimes. And so there are things that you and I might have different views on when it comes to interpreting this book. And that's okay. We can disagree uh, about some of the specifics without having to break fellowship with one another. We can still love each other through those things, talk about some of these things, uh, and just have a great time with each other, all right? So my goal today is not necessarily to try to convince you to my side of any argument. Uh, it's not to try to say, this is what I believe, and if you don't, you're wrong. I don't know. That's not where we're, where we're going. That's not what we're doing. I simply want to take some questions that were posed and try to say, here's how I understand Scripture to teach and answer that specific question. So if you've missed our study, you can go back and listen uh, on our website through podcasts and videos and those kinds of things, and you can catch up. But here's the first question that was posed, and uh, this comes from Revelation chapter 19 and 20. And the person I asked, I said, Revelation 19 and 20 give accounts of the beast and Satan being thrown into the lake of burning sulfur are both descriptions of the same event. And so what we see in chapter 19 uh, is that it describes the beast and the false prophet bringing the nations to war against God. The beast is more what we would know as the Antichrist. John most often calls him the beast. We call him the Antichrist. And so if you watch movies or TV, that's probably what you would see or know. Uh, it's the Antichrist. And so the Antichrist will have a world system that he leads as a governing leader. He will have a person with him that, we, that John calls the false prophet, uh, kind of his second in command, if you will. And the false prophet's desire is to lead people to worship the beast, to worship the Antichrist. And so what we see in this is that the nations will come together under the leadership of the Antichrist to war against God. And even if you are not a church person, even if the book of Revelation is weird to you, you've probably at least heard the term the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, in fact, there's a new TV show that's about to come on. I think Prime, Amazon Prime is about to release this. It's one of their streaming things, and it's called Good Omens, I think. And the whole thing is about an angel and a demon helping work together to stop the Battle of Armageddon from occurring because they know that's going to be the end of everything. And it's like, well, that's a really weird premise for a TV show, but, but that's where we're going. So we'll follow along. All right. And so uh, for, for this, though, the Antichrist in the end is going to have his kingdom and his desire is going to be to elevate himself under the power and authority of Satan to take over control of the whole world. And he will do that. He will go to war against God at the Battle of Armageddon. Now, here's what we've talked about throughout this series. It's not much of a battle. If you're waiting for the sides to be drawn up and there'd be this crazy war and it's kind of like this, who's going to win? We don't know. That's not how it's going to take place at all. When John describes the battle taking place, Jesus shows up, he speaks over the battlefield, everyone dies and the battle's over. And so it's more like a showing up at Armageddon than a battle of Armageddon. That's just kind of how it takes place. And so the question here is asking though, in the end of chapter 19, it describes the beast and the false prophet being thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. And then in the beginning of 20, it describes the same thing happening with Satan. Are they the same event or two different events? So let's read this passage together and let's discuss uh, what, what it looks like. 
Revelation chapter 19, verses 19 and 20. John says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. The rider on the horse is Jesus. He's coming in the clouds with his army to make war against the Antichrist. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who had performed the signs on its behalf. And with these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. And the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Now, in this passage, it's the beast and the false prophet who are captured and thrown alive into the lake of sulfur. This is the eternal hell, all right? And so they're cast aside from God, never to be seen again. They don't pop up in the book later on. They're gone. The Antichrist and the beast, the false prophet, are gone at this point. So that leads us into the question, well, then what about Satan? Where is he? If he's not part of those two, where is he in this whole picture? So let's look at chapter 20 verses one through three, and we see what happens with Satan. He, John writes again, it says, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and he locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he, Satan, must be set free for a short time. Now, Satan does not immediately suffer the same fate that the beast and the false prophet do. While they're thrown into the burning lake of sulfur, Satan is chained and he's thrown into the abyss, a different location, more of a holding cell, a prison, if you will, for Satan. And he tells us he's going to be chained, thrown there, imprisoned for a period of time while God sets up his kingdom under the authority of Jesus to reign for a thousand years. That doesn't necessarily mean a literal 1,000 years. We're going to count down the calendar dates and go, all right, time's up. Now Satan's going to be released. It just means for a specific period of time, for the fullness of the time of God's reign, he's going to be in that position of authority. And then Satan is going to be released for a short period of time. And he's released to once again deceive the nations and to try to go to war against God. He's going to convince people, we didn't win the one at Armageddon, but we can win this one. Let's go to war against God. We can get our place. I can be in charge. We're going to go to war and we're going to win. And again, it's not much of a battle. We're going to see in just a second what happens in verse 7 through 10. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 through 10. It says, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So to answer the question that was posed, chapter 19 and chapter 20 are not descriptions of the same account. 19 deals with the false prophet and the beast, and 20 deals with the Antichrist, or excuse me, deals with Satan himself. So it's two separate events that take place around a similar circumstance, and it's the ultimate defeat of both of these, uh, these groups, all right? So in the end, they're both defeated, they're both destroyed, and it's not even a challenge for God to do that. He, he gives Satan permission for a season in this life 
to have ownership around this world, to deceive the nations away from him. But God ultimately will bring his rule and his reign to the earth. And he will set up his kingdom free of sin, void of sinfulness and void of Satan's deceptions so that we can reign with Jesus forever and forever. So these chapter 19 and 20, two different events uh, that happen around the same time. All right. Uh, so great question. Here's the second question that was posed. And by the way, there were about six or seven questions that were asked to me. We're probably only going to get to four of them today. And then what my plan will be is for those that we couldn't answer today live, I'm going to hopefully do some Facebook live videos over the next couple weeks and just take a few minutes a day and, and answer some questions uh, so that we get everybody's questions because there were some really good things that were asked. Uh, so here's question number two. How is it that the number who are sealed in chapter 7, which is 144,000, is not the same group mentioned in chapter 14, also 144,000? Uh, this person said, I found in my study that numbers are very significant and are not just haphazard, to which I would say, amen. I agree with that. Uh, numbers are not haphazard in scripture. In fact, God uses numbers over and over and over again, not just to tell us things that happen, but the significance behind how they happen. And so what you see here, the questions being asked in chapter seven, Jesus uh, introduces us to these 144,000. And then again, in chapter 14, they show up once again. This person, as they've, as they've read this and asked this question, and again, I don't know who anybody is that wrote these things, but I think um, maybe there's a misunderstanding of how you've read this. And so I want to try to bring some clarity to it because from my perspective, I see these as the same group. They're one and the same. There are not two different sets of 144,000. And so I want us to talk through that. Um, in the case of these 144,000, though, there are some very significant things going on here, things that I didn't get to talk about in my earlier messages on this topic. And so I'm going to try to bring some clarity to that today as well. But I don't see anything in the text that would lead us to believe these are two separate groups. I want us to read these two passages together, uh, and then we'll talk through it a little bit. So Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8 John says, after this, I saw four angels standing together at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. And then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000, from the tribe of Reuben, from the tribe of Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. So for all of these 12,000. Now, if you look at Revelation chapter 14, one through five, John says this, then I looked and there before me was the lamb, Jesus, standing on Mount Zion and with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing water and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered, to the first, uh, offered as firstfruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, chapter 7 describes the 144,000 and where they come from. Chapter 14 describes the 144,000 and gives us attributes of them and characteristics of them. But I see no, nothing here in Scripture that delineates them as being separate 
separate groups, separate entities. And so I want us to kind of talk through this and see what we find here. Um, number one is this, that the 144,000 are those who are represented as believers in Christ. All right. So where we might read something like this and say 144,000 means count them off. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There's 144,000 of them. In fact, I had a conversation with somebody uh, between services that said they were one time told in a tradition, a faith tradition that they had gone to church with or had friends that went to a, a specific church that because they were not part of that church, which believes in this 144,000 being very literal, that they are not going to heaven when they die. They have to be a member of this specific branch of, of Christendom in order to be a part of the followers of Jesus. That's not what John is saying at all. There are not 144,000 people who get a special uh, calling to follow Jesus, and that's it. That's the only ones. Uh, what this is representing is that it is all of God's people for all time. It's 12 to the, elaborate out to the 10th power, I think, if you go out, 144,000. So it's this complete round, you guys will learn really fast, I'm not good with numbers or math. And so all of you Eastmanites, don't come see me afterwards and tell me how bad I am at this. We're gonna have a whole thing later that's just gonna be about numbers, and it's gonna be terrible. So uh, we'll talk later, all right? But here's what we're basically gonna find in this. What he's trying to describe is that the 144,000 represent all believers for all time. And so what we see in the breakdown as we follow along in this is that God does a couple of things. Number one, he puts his ownership on us. John said, I looked and they, they had the seal of God on their forehead. And we see that play out a few times in scripture, but a couple of times in Revelation specifically, that we're sealed, that there's a seal on our, for, uh, our forehead and on our hands. The Antichrist mimics that in his kingdom. And he puts a seal of people on the forehead and on the hands. And so here's what we hear that in our culture. And we go, oh man, this is the mark of the beast. And this is the antichrist. And there's going to be a chip they're going to implant under your skin. You're going to have to scan everything. And, and this is where we're going in life. And that's how things are going to work out. That's not what I think John is talking about at all. When he says that the seal of God is on our forehead. The angels aren't going by and stamping everyone and going, gods, 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 gods. Like you're not going to have a stamp or a tattoo or anything like that. All right. This is a way of saying and representing our minds our hands, the actions and attitudes of our heart and our bodies are sealed by God. We belong to him and we do things the way God does. He moves our hands. He moves our minds. He has our bodies under his control. We are sealed by him. All right. This was also a way in the first century of representing ownership of someone. So if you purchased a slave, then you would put your seal on them so that people would know you own that person. God is not calling us slaves in the sense of being owned like you will do what I tell you to do. He's calling us into his family. This ownership idea means that God has purchased us, not so that we will do what he tells us to do, but to redeem us out of sin and into his kingdom. We've been purchased by God, bought by him. The blood of Jesus paid for our sinfulness to be dealt with so that we can have access to God in a relationship with him. So when John says we're sealed by him, that's part of being this 144,000. All believers have this. We've given the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then the second thing here is he says that the 144,000 in return do not defile themselves by engaging in the evil of the world. John talks about it by saying they remain virgins. And again, that's not, and I've been in different churches where the teaching has been, there will be 144,000 who will accept Christ at the end of time during the tribulation period, and they will be virgins. They will refrain from being married and sleeping with women. That's just how they're characterized. John's not saying that, in my opinion. Here's what John's communicating to us. 
To remain virgins means that we take ourselves out of the evil of the culture around us. When the city of Babylon is described all through the book of Revelation, the city of Babylon, the new Babylon, Babylon the Great, is the city and the capital of the Antichrist kingdom. And John constantly calls the the Antichrist kingdom, Babylon, that great city, the whore, or the deceiver, or the prostitute. That's how he talks about the city and the kingdom of the Antichrist. So he tells us those who follow Jesus remain virgins. They don't engage the city of the Antichrist. They don't engage the kingdom of the Antichrist. They remain pure from the Antichrist ways to follow after God. They remain virgins, right? So he's not talking about our sexuality. He's talking about our our spirituality in regards to how we live in this country now or in this world. Um, now, here's the next thing regarding these, uh, these 12 tribes and uh, the 144,000. What you would notice if you had lived in the first century, and if you are a Bible scholar on any level, is this, that the list of the 12 tribes that, he, that John brings out are not the original 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, multiple times through scripture, we'll find lists of the tribes. John's in Revelation is the only one that is listed as he lists it. So when you read this, you go, okay, John's trying to tell us something because he's changed some things in the 12 tribes. That's a pretty significant thing, especially in uh, historical Jewish culture. You want to know which tribe you're part of. You're holding that as history. This is your family lineage. This is your belonging to the body of Christ comes through this Jewish lineage and faith. So for John to write these things out, first century Jewish people would be going, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) John, let's talk about this for a second. Those people are not all the 12 tribes. And you've messed up some order here. So why would John do that? The first thing that I think he would do is he would cause his readers to read that and go, wait a minute, why are these people changed? And why are they not here? And why is he in this different order? It would cause the readers to look and go, I need to understand why John included some people and excluded others. What is he trying to communicate to me as a follower of Christ through this listing? So here's what we're going to see. Dan and Ephraim are part of the original 12 tribes. They're not mentioned in John's list of the 12 tribes with 144,000. Joseph is included. One of his sons, Manasseh, is also included. So Joseph has a double portion in this list and characterization of the tribes of Israel. Also, you're going to notice that Judah is not the firstborn in birth order, but in the list of the tribes, he is moved to the top of the order. He's the first one. So when John has his list, he says, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000. Readers would have gone, wait a minute, why is Judah there? And so it's important for us to answer some of these questions. Why does John do this this way? Here's the answers. (laughs) Because I know everything, let me tell you. Um, I don't, I'm just helping out some things here. Here's what I've learned, here's what I've been studying, here's what I'm finding. Here's what we would know. Judah is put at the top because through Judah, what does God choose to do? He introduces his kingly line. It's from Judah that David comes. It's from Judah that Solomon comes. It's from Judah that Jesus comes. John calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah. Our savior comes through Judah's lineage. Now here's what's crazy about this. Judah was of the 12 original tribes tribes of Israel. He was one of the worst men in the group. He was a bad guy. If you go back and read Genesis, you're going to find the story of Judah, and it's not pretty. He's deceptive. He's mean. He's vindictive. He's immoral. Judah's line is a mess. 
And yet it's from that that God says, I'm going to choose you to bring my king of the whole earth. Here's the last thing, though, that we find about Judah. Is the last thing that's really revealed to us in Genesis. Judah was responsible for selling one of his brothers, Joseph, into slavery in Egypt. And years later, when there's a famine in the land of, of Canaan, the brothers have to go to Egypt in order to buy food. And by that time, God has elevated Joseph, this lost brother, the sold-off one, to a position of authority where he's second in command of all of Egypt, and he has control of the food. His brothers come before him, the 12 brothers or the 11 brothers come before him, and he recognizes them, but they don't know who he is. And so he begins to test them. He puts them through a series of tests to find out if they've changed since they sold him into slavery. And the last test was he found out they had a younger brother that was born after Joseph had been sold, Benjamin. He says, I want you to bring Benjamin to me. And they go, we can't do that. If we bring Benjamin, our father will die. We have to leave Benjamin with him. And he goes, I won't sell you any more food unless you bring Benjamin. So they finally do. They talk their father into it. They bring Benjamin and Joseph says, I want you to put him in prison. Joseph's going to do the same thing to Benjamin that his brothers did to him and see how they respond. And you would think, based on past experiences, Judah would be the one going, well, can we at least get some money for this guy if we're going to leave him here with you? And that's not what happens at all. Judah's the one that steps forward and says, don't take my brother, take me. It would break my father's heart to the point of death if his son doesn't return. Let me stand in his place. And the gospel picture of Judah comes in that moment where we see him being willing to take the place of his brother and pay for what his brother is earning. And when you take that forward to the New Testament, you go, Jesus comes through the line of Judah, and when he's brought into this world, what does Jesus do? He stands in our place. He sees us as slaves. He sees us as captives. He sees us under the weight and the power of sin, and Jesus says, I'll pay your uh, debt to give you freedom so that you can have a relationship with God. And so Jesus took our place the same way that Judah took Benjamin's place. And so it's from that line that God goes, that's what I'm going to bring my Messiah through. Now, when we see Dan and Ephraim missing in this 12 tribes, we kind of go, okay, well, what's going on with them? What's the story of those guys? And I promise this is all going somewhere. So hold on for just a minute. Ephraim and Dan were responsible for introducing idol worship into the nation of Israel once they had been given the promised land by God. Dan had seen the allotted land, not Dan himself, but the tribe of Dan, had seen the allotment of land they had been given in the promised land, and they decided to reject God's land that they had given, been given. So they turned that over to someone else. They are going through the land of Ephraim, who has idols in their land. And Dan takes these idols and then introduces idol worship to the remainder of the tribes around Dan and Ephraim help institute idol worship and they bring apostasy into the camp of Israel. And for those reasons, John is trying to tell us, don't be like those guys. When you think about the history of Israel and you see how these guys were, be content with what God gives to you and only worship God. Know that he is the one true God and anyone who worships idols is not included in the kingdom of God, in the family of God. They're excluded from being with Jesus forever. And so John, as he's writing these things, is telling us, you need to know these stories to understand who's included. Now, when you get to the next part where you see three other names that are observed in the list, we see Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. You go, okay, those were all part of the original tribes, but here's what's important about them. Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. And these two wives 
at certain times in their family history, got into kind of baby-making contests to earn the favor of their husband, Jacob. It's a weird story. The Bible is a crazy thing. Just read it, sit down and listen to the stories. But at one point, they're trying to earn Jacob's favor as wives. And so they keep going, well, I'll have a baby and then he'll love me. And then the other one will go, well, I'll have a baby and he'll love me. And then it's another one, well, I'll have a baby. And then they get to a point where they can't have babies anymore. So they got to go, well, then we'll give you our concubines. Here you go. Now have kids with them. And it just gets crazy. And these three, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali, are born to, as, uh, to Jacob from the servants of his wives. So while they are included in the 12 tribes, they're not really part of the family, the original family, Jacob and his wives. They're not meant to be there. God grafts them into that. And he oh, that's important. Because for us as Gentiles, who are not part of the children of Israel, the kingdom, the chosen people of God, Jesus says, I've come so that all people may have access to God. He grafts us into his family. We weren't supposed to be included, but now we are. By the grace of God, we're grafted in. We're all children of God. So what, jo uh, what John is communicating by the 12,000 from each tribe, the 12 tribes and the different numbers and the different names that are listed, he's trying to tell us this is representative of all Christians for all time. Everyone that believes in Christ is fulfilled in these things, whether you're Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, Manasseh, or if you're left out of this, like Dan and Ephraim, this is why you would be left out, because you've chosen to worship and serve other gods rather than Jesus. And so all of these things are important for us to know and understand what's taking place in this. Now, to get back to the original question, you don't remember because I've talked for a while. All this is in response to the question, yes, numbers are significant in scripture. And I believe what we see in chapter seven and chapter 14 of Revelation are the same group of people. It's the complete people of God living in this world for his glory while remaining separate from the evils of the world. That's what we're called to do. Remain separate from the evils of the world, live unto God, be with him and follow him. All right. So clear as mud. Everybody good? Great. All right. Uh, so the next question that we're going to tackle this morning uh, deals with the same passage of scripture, but it asks two different things. So I'm going to take them separately. So here's number three. If you're looking, it says, what are the reasons that you, me, why I do not believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church? And this person asked the question, it says, I believe the pre-trib view for several reasons. First Thessalonians 5, 9 says, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 says we will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. All right, so that's a great question. If you're not familiar with this language, if you're new to church or Revelation confuses you, there's a couple of things you should know here. There are three basic different views um, that people hold about the rapture of the church. One is that there will be a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, that before all hell on earth breaks loose in a tribulation period, that the church will be raptured out. Rapture just means to be caught up or to, take, to be taken out. So a lot of people would believe and hold to that teaching. The church will be raptured out, then the Antichrist will rise and a kingdom will come and there will be all hell on earth that breaks loose. There are other people who believe in a mid-tribulation rapture of the church, that about Halfway through the tribulation, God will interact or intervene and the church will be called out at that period of time. The last group of people, myself included, would be called a post-tribulation rapture of the church, which means that after the full period of time that the tribulation has occurred, the church will be called out only to quickly return and be a part of the very end judgment and battles. All right, so let me kind of clear that up 
by walking through some of these things. First, it's probably important to recognize that the term rapture does not appear anywhere in Scripture. All right? There are passages that talk about, like the one we saw a minute ago from 1 Thessalonians 5, being caught out or caught up or joining God in the air. But the term rapture is not included uh, in this at all. Um, the, tr- the pre-tribulation rapture theology began in the 17th century, uh, or excuse me, in the 18th century, and then it was greatly popularized in the 20th century with the Schofield Reference Bible. When the Schofield Reference Bible was written, or maybe you have a Ryrie Study Bible, some of these different ones that hold to a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, when they started writing their Bibles and commentaries and uh, these kinds of things, the pre-tribulation view of Scripture really took a hold, in, especially in Western civilization. But uh, for us, that means that the first 17 centuries after Christ, the church didn't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church out before the tribulation happened. All right, so this is a relatively new teaching. It's a relatively new understanding of things. Um, many people like and appreciate this view for really good reason. Because what it means is, is that if we're raptured out before the tribulation, we don't have to be here during all that mess of the, the reign of the Antichrist and the judgments of God and all those kinds of things. So it's a great view to hold to if you have kind of an escapist view of how we live in this world. Um, but here's where I kind of see this. What we can often do is create a theology based on a few verses when we bring a view to the verses before we read the verse themselves. And I did this for a long time. This was my stance. I was a pre-tribulation rapture of the church kind of person. That's how I was taught. That's how I was raised. And so when I would read the Bible, I always read it through the lens of, all right, well, we're going to be gone. So what does that verse say in the reality of we're going to be gone? In the last few years, what I've been learning and kind of figuring out is I, I don't see anything in Scripture personally that leads us toward that. That if we just read the Bible to say what it says in its context without first coming and saying, all right, this verse is about a rapture of a church before the tribulation. If we go back and just say, well, what does it really say? I think it clears something. So uh, I wanted to, to take a look at these passages really quickly. First uh, Thessalonians uh, is the, the passage that somebody asked about. Start in, in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 13, and we're going to go through 511. Paul writes and says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring Jesus, well, excuse me, will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, Let us not live like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. 
to sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Now, Paul is writing this passage of scripture to answer a question. Just like I'm answering questions today, the Thessalonian church had asked questions of Paul. He's writing in response to them. And their question had been, hey, Paul, we're all waiting for Jesus to come back. We're living as if Jesus could come back any minute. We want Jesus to come back. We can't wait for Jesus to come back. But Paul, what about our friends and family members who know Jesus, love Jesus, were waiting for Jesus, but now they've died and they're not going to be here to see Jesus come back. What about them, Paul? What's going to happen? Are they going to miss this? Are they going to miss the glorious return of Jesus that we're waiting on? And Paul's answer to them is simply this. No. Here's what we need to understand. Those who have died in faith in Christ, they will precede us in being with him. And they will return with Christ when he comes. And then we will be called out to meet them in the air at the trumpet sound. And then we'll be with the Lord forever. Now that trumpet, this is another place where if you're pre-tribulation view of the rapture, you always read this and go, there's going to be a trumpet. And then we're going to go. And then we're going to be gone for a while while all hell breaks loose on earth during the tribulation. And then we're going to come back and there's going to be judgment and battle and all that kind of stuff. I believe based on many of the places in scripture that talk about this, and especially uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, he talks about at the last trumpet, then we will be with the Lord forever. And you go, okay, well, what's the last trumpet? Well, in Revelation, there are different judgments that take place. There are a series of seven bold judgments, a series of seven sealed judgments, and a series of seven trumpet judgments. <laughs> and at the end of the trumpet judgments is when John talks about Jesus returns. I believe at that last trumpet sound, when Jesus comes back to judge, that's when we are called out to be with him. The dead rise first. We're called out to meet him in the air. And then we come back almost immediately to reign with him and to set up his kingdom and to have his judgment come over the earth. So when we see these things, the second element of the question that was asked there was just simply this. Uh, it says that in the, uh, in the statement from 1, Corinthians 5, or 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, we were not appointed to suffer wrath. So if we're not appointed to suffer wrath, why would God let us be here during a tribulation period? And I think we need to have a clear understanding about this, that when the tribulation happens, it is the wrath of God poured out on the world. But that God knows how to supernaturally protect those who are his. That we will be covered under his divine seal and protection. When, when the angels say, put the mark of God on the foreheads of the followers of Jesus, that's his seal protecting us. And much like if you go back and read the account of the Exodus, when the children of Israel brought out of Egypt and God pours out many of these same plagues on Egypt, what happens? Egypt is decimated. The people that are living right beside Egypt in Goshen are completely spared. Right, like they're, they're living in a suburb of downtown Egypt. And God completely protects his people supernaturally. The same type of thing I believe will happen in Revelation. That those who are followers of Christ during the tribulation period will experience the supernatural divine protection of God over us 
during that period of time. So here's what we can expect. While we won't experience the wrath of God, and the ultimate wrath of God, by the way, is separation from him, eternal separation from God in hell. That's the ultimate wrath of God poured out. And while we're not intended to suffer the wrath of God, we should be prepared, if we're alive during this period of time, to face persecution. Because the Antichrist and the followers of the Antichrist who experience the wrath of God poured out will look for someone to blame. And guess who they'll turn to? Christians. Your God is the one doing this to us. We're going to retaliate against you. Revelation is clear that countless thousands, maybe millions, will be killed by the Antichrist in his kingdom, in his reign. And the vast majority of those will be followers of Jesus. And so what we need to be prepared for is a theology that helps us know how to live with persecution that takes place and understand that it's not the wrath of God on us, but the persecution that comes from those who are experiencing the wrath of God poured out on them. Our theology needs to be such that when we think about this, that we don't eliminate suffering as an option in our lives. In 21st century America, we consider it suffering for Jesus if somebody says something nasty on our Facebook page. <laughs> or if you don't get the promotion at work, you are really suffering for Jesus because of your Christian views. All the while, our Christian brothers and sisters all over this world are being brutalized, decimated because of their faith in Jesus. There is an all-out war going on against Christianity today. And while we live in a bubble where we're sealed and protected from that on some level, there are those of our brothers and sisters today who do not take the same view of Scripture that we have and go, we're not supposed to suffer. <laughs> they are suffering. They are being persecuted. They are experiencing these kinds of things in their life now. And we need to pray for our brothers and sisters. We need to hold them up. And as possible, we need to go to them and love them and bless them. So that's the first part of that question. Here's the second one. Uh, someone else asked the question about the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, they said, uh, can you go to the next slide? First um, Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 describe an event where the dead and the living are caught up to meet Jesus in the clouds. If we remain on the earth during the tribulation, the final judgment and the thousand year reign of Christ, what's this passage referring to? And so I've already kind of alluded to this. This will be a really quick answer. Um, I think, again, just simply that at the last trumpet, when the final judgment of God is revealed against humanity, as Jesus comes back to judge, he will call us out to meet with him in the air and then we will immediately come back. We will be present for the Battle of Armageddon, the gathering at Armageddon. Uh, we will be there for that. Jesus will speak over that field. The Antichrist and the false prophet will be dealt with. Satan will be imprisoned. His thousand-year reign or his total reign for a period of time will take place, and we will be with him at that point. So in my estimation, my opinion, I think the way I read Scripture is that when the calling out happens, it's a quick calling out to join Jesus in the air, only to quickly return with him to come back, to judge and to set up his kingdom. All right? So, uh, all right, last question. Let's end this morning on a little bit more of a fun side. Because it's a Memorial Day weekend. It's a, it's a fun weekend. It's supposed to be, right? And so you're kind of all going, man, we should have fun <laughs> before we leave and get out of here for church, right? So let's do some speculation for just a minute. You want to do that? This is a chance where this is not, thus saith the Lord. The way I'm going to answer this next question is going to be more like, what if, man? This could be how it goes. Let's just let our minds roll for a few minutes. So here's the question. If the new heavens and the earth are on a renewed earth, our current earth, will there be enough space and room for all believers throughout all time? 
Wow, that's a great question, right? So my belief is, is that God will call us out um, that when he recreates the earth, that he will destroy it by fire. We've seen John talk about that. We've seen Paul talk about that. And that he will recreate on this current sphere, right? That he's not going to have a brand new creation. He's going to renew his current creation. And he's going to make all things new for his kingdom. No more suffering, no more mourning, no more death, no more crying, no more tears, none of that stuff. We're going to be on his earth in its brand new creation, okay? Now, with that said, we go, all right, well, there's a lot of people who may be there in that kingdom. There may be a lot of people. In fact, there's not just a lot of people. There's also a lot of angels. The Bible talks about countless numbers of angels. Is there going to be enough realty <laughs> for us to all exist on planet earth? Well, that's a really cool question. Uh, and I've got several things here to think through. Number one is this, that it is estimated that about 108 billion people have lived on earth in its entire history. All right, that's just an estimation. Uh, I researched some world growth patterns this week. Um, and research around numbers is not my forte. So don't take any of this uh, 100%. And I did use sources other than Wikipedia, so we can trust some of that a little bit. Uh, but it says that one of the resources I found talked about the first 200,000 years of human history, while the other approached population growth from 10,000 years of human history. They both came to the same conclusions. They just came at it from a much longer span of time. Since I'm personally a young earth creationist, believe the earth was created in seven days, it's a young earth, and we're going to take the 10,000 years approach. If you're on a bigger scale than that, that's fine. You can take the 200,000 years approach. But they came to the same numbers, basically. That whether it's the first 200,000 or the first 10,000 years, a billion people in population happened in those first 10,000 years, one billion. That's how long it took to get to a billion. Since then, in the last 200 years, we've reached 8 billion. That is a lot of human growth on planet Earth. That's less time for us to go from 1 billion to 8 billion than the United States has existed as a nation. Right? So that just puts it in perspective. While there have been billions of people that have lived on planet Earth, the vast majority of them at one time live right now. So when we think about this and go, all right, so there's 8 billion people on planet Earth right now. Do we seem like we have any land issues? I don't think so. I don't know if you've ever driven through West Texas or Nebraska or South Dakota or Iowa, but nobody lives there. <laughs> like, there's a lot of open land. The Sahara Desert, unpopulated, uninhabitable. Antarctica, uninhabitable. Some places are just uninhabited because you look at it and go, no. <laughs> but there's a lot of land on this earth that could be lived in and is currently not. And I think when Jesus comes back and recreates the earth, He's going to bring it back to a place of divine perfection. He's going to, this is what it would have looked like if Adam and Eve had not sinned originally. It's a perfect place to live. It's a great place to be. And all of it is inhabitable. So spread out and fill the earth, right? Now, here's another interesting thought. Part of what we might see in this is that the, uh, in the new creation, Right now, if you want to build a subdivision, you're going to go house here, house there, house there, house there, house there, and it's all going to go that way. In the new creation, Jesus talks about, John identifies and said, when Jesus brought the new city, Jerusalem, down out of heaven to the earth, it was 1,500 miles high. That's a big city, guys. What if what we can build in the new creation is not just house, 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 house? What if it's house, 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 house? Like, they can just be everywhere. And there's no no stopping point to how high we can build. 
What if we can build into the heavens? We don't know. We're speculating now. This isn't in the Bible, guys, all right? <laughs> don't go home and write stuff about, like, my pastor has crazy theological views. We're just spitballing here, okay? But what if? What if the skyscrapers of the new heaven and earth make our current skyscrapers look like toothpicks? I mean, if you think about it, a city that's 1,500 miles high, look, we need to fly if that's going to be the case, okay? Because taking the stairs is going to be really hard. I don't want to wait on that elevator to come. Like, I'm hopeful that we're flying around all over the place. But there's just lots of things that we can think about and go, can we inhabit this place with all believers of all time? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's plenty of room. Somebody actually told me this afternoon, or between services, said if you took the population of the earth right now, 8 billion people, you could put them in Texas. And everybody would have 1,200, what was it, 1,200 cubic feet or so of realty. That's a lot. A lot of people. And then that means that outside of Texas, the whole rest of the earth can be filled. I think there's plenty of room here. Here's where I want to leave us, though. The important thing is not how we fill the earth. The important thing is that the earth will be filled with the presence of God. That's what we're waiting on. That's what we want. We want to be in God's presence. We want to be with him forever and ever and ever. And what we're promised is that that's exactly what's going to happen. The way we ended last week, Jesus said, behold, I am coming soon. So we wait. We wait for his coming. We wait in anticipation. And while we wait, our objective is to live in obedience to Jesus. That's our goal. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.